0: So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10, it's the third gospel. Last week, we started a new spiritual discipline focused on eating and drinking. Um, if you're new to Van City, I just want to say welcome. We're super glad that you're here with us tonight. At Van City, we make it our goal to disciple, or another way to say that is to apprentice after Jesus of Nazareth. Our goal is to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things that Jesus did. In order to go about doing this, uh, we work our way through either a spiritual discipline or an emotional health principle that we see emulated in the life and the teachings of Jesus and the scriptures. We then scatter around Vancouver throughout the week in small groups that uh, we call Van City Communities, and it's there that we share a meal together, we share life, um, and then we work through a curriculum we call the Practices in order to put into actions the things that we're learning about. And in this way, we develop a myriad of habits and lifestyle changes in order to center our lives on Jesus. Pretty straightforward. If you weren't here last week for the teaching, you absolutely need to go back and listen to it on the podcast. There's a ton of fundamentals in there that's going to help with uh, the rest of this series uh, and tonight too. You know, a couple months ago, There was a survey conducted by a health services company, and they surveyed 20,000 adults across America on loneliness and isolation. So let's just look at some of those results here. 43% of people sometimes or always feel like their relationships are not meaningful. The same percentage said that they are isolated from others. 46% 46% report sometimes or always feeling alone, 47% sometimes are always feeling left out, and then this one is just staggering to me. 47% of people report not having meaningful in-person social interactions on a daily basis, such as having an extended conversation with a friend or quality time with family. If you think there must've been an age discrepancy um, in this survey, you know, because uh, a lot of times people who are retired or who are in senior care homes um, are the most vulnerable to loneliness and and isolation, Um, you'd actually uh, be wrong, that's not the case. The loneliest age group in this study was 18 to 22. Researchers are now tying the word epidemic to loneliness, as in there is a loneliness, loneliness epidemic right now. And yet, our country is incredibly divided right now, along political lines, racial lines, socio-economic lines. None of this is surprising. We see it in the news every single day. We've been trained to be wary of strangers. You know, mass shootings are almost a daily occurrence. And so the question is, does the way of Jesus have any meaningful response to all of this? Josh talked last week about this idea of hospitality, of opening our homes and sharing a meal with the stranger and the lost. Tonight, we're going to add on to this idea to define for us an area of spiritual responsibility which will help focus our practice of hospitality. So let's dive into our text tonight. Are you guys ready? Someone's ready, yeah. Get it. Awesome, look down at your Bibles with me at Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, so let's unpack some stuff here. Um, This expert in the law was like um, a, a Bible scholar and a lawyer put together like a Bible lawyer. Uh, And some of you are thinking that sounds like an atrocious combination, and I'm sure it was great, just pleasant. Um, The scriptures, though, uh, to uh, the Jewish people were the law. Most Jews considered it their obligation to follow all 613 Old Testament commands. But as you studied those laws, it inevitably brought up questions on how you obey them, and so we see this uh, sort of uh, relationship with the law and trying to figure out how to obey in this interaction with Jesus. The Bible lawyer is asking Jesus what he must do to be saved, which is an important question. And so Jesus actually asks him what he thinks the law is. The guy says, What do you think, Jesus? And Jesus is like, Well, I want to hear what you have to say. What do you think? And so the man answers by quoting two Old Testament passages, uh, like any Bible lawyer would. Uh, The first is from Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with yada, yada, yada. And everyone agreed that that was the most important. That was not up for debate. But the second that this guy says is love your neighbor as yourself. And that's from Leviticus 19.18, and it was hotly debated One major school of thought, uh, Hillel, believed that it was this passage from Leviticus to love your neighbor, Um, and the other major school of thought was Shammai, who believed it was the command in the Old Testament to be holy as I am holy. And so this Bible lawyer stands with Hillel. He thinks it's to love your neighbor as yourself, and interesting enough, Jesus has an opinion. He, He agrees. He thinks this is correct. But then this guy's lawyer side comes out, right? which is probably not a good idea to want to look good in front of people by asking Jesus like a lawyery kind of question. It doesn't generally turn out well for the person asking. And I, to me, I'm just like, dude, just quit while you're ahead. Jesus was into what you were saying. But let's give this man a little credit. Um, he is dead serious about obeying all of God's commands. And so he needs to know exactly how to define who his neighbor is in order to ensure his obedience. And for most Bible lawyers, the idea was that your neighbor was any ethnic Jew in good standing. And yet then the command didn't apply to anybody else, only an ethnic Jew in good standing. Keep this in mind in Jesus' response. Let's keep reading in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. That's a bummer. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. Now, I'm sure the the Bible lawyer, when he asks Jesus' question, was looking for like this precise, succinct answer from Jesus, like a dictionary definition, right? Like, this is what your neighbor is. Um, So Jesus goes ahead and tells a story instead. Love it. The road uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho that Jesus mentions was around 17 miles and had a total elevation drop of 3,000 feet. So it was uh, somewhat of a treacherous journey because of this, lots of switchbacks and stuff. But even more dangerous was the fact that it was a favorite route of gangs uh, to rob people. So Jesus uses this well-known route that had a reputation for being dangerous. And and so he kind of places this story in in, in a sort of um, realistic setting. And let's keep reading. Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So you're, you're thinking as the audience, when Jesus is saying a priest happened to be going down the same road, you're thinking, oh, like this is a fortunate turn of events for this half-dead man, or so it would, would appear. You know, you would think surely the priest, like a leader of Israel's religious life, would save the day, but he does not. Now, uh, I have to say, there's been a ton of speculation as to why this priest in the story wouldn't help this man. Uh, You know, maybe it was to keep his ritual purity intact, or maybe he was just a jerk. Kind of the theories are all along those uh, lines in in, in that spectrum. But I actually think it's important that Jesus doesn't mention his motivation. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, doesn't matter what this priest's motivation was, this is just how he acted. And now look down at the next verse in verse 32. So, to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And again, you're thinking, oh, now a Levite comes. This is an assistant to the priest. Again, another person that's part of the religious leadership of Israel. And yet he behaves just like the priest. And again, no motivation is given by Jesus. Keep reading. Verse 33. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And I just imagine Jesus saying this with almost a, a small smirk on his face, like he, he just couldn't help himself. You know, the, the priest and the Levite don't render aid to this man, and so enter in the anti-hero, the, the Samaritan. Samaritans were a hated rival ethnic group group to the Jews. Uh, the Jews considered them uh, somewhat of half-breeds because they were distant descendants from Jewish people intermarrying with pagans. Both Jews and Samaritans were guilty of sneaking into each other's temples and desecrating them with dead men's bones. Uh, just a loving relationship. Really, it was, it was intense. It was ongoing as tit-for-tat hatred between, between these two groups. And so the Samaritan this enemy sees the man half dead and has pity on him. And this Greek word for pity isn't just like um, the word like, oh, he thought, oh, poor guy, that's too bad. It's more of this inward gut feeling. It could be translated, he was tore up. Now keep reading to see what happens. He went to him, And bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So this Samaritan was tore up by this man's situation. So he bandaged the wounds and poured oil oil and wine on them uh, to try and clean them, um, both of which were not cheap. Um, Then he puts the man on his own donkey and now has to walk on foot the rest of the way to Jericho or wherever this inn was located. He brought brought him to this inn, he took care of him, and then notice the beginning of verse 35 says, the next day, the Samaritan stayed up with this man through the night, and then paid the innkeeper almost a month's worth of wages to ensure the man was cared for. And we say, oh, man, that's, that's beautiful. The enemy is the hero, and we cheer this story. And it's one of the most well-known in the entire Bible. But uh, we're not quite done yet. Let's finish up this passage because Jesus still has something to say. So Jesus asked the Bible lawyer in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus uh, kind of flips the Bible lawyer's question around. And he answers the question not of who is my neighbor, but who am I being a neighbor to? The Bible lawyer replies correctly, Um, Although, notice he doesn't say the Samaritan, right? He says the one who had mercy. To love our neighbor isn't to limit the love we have. It's not about drawing boundary lines. It's about being a neighbor to those we come across. It's to have mercy on anyone we see in need. And then Jesus says probably the most troubling line for us. He says, go and do likewise. Likewise. We'll come back to that in a minute. Okay, how are you guys doing? Made it through the story, you good? Yep, okay, so let's talk about some implications for us tonight. I want to acknowledge something, um, that Jesus broadens the definition of who our neighbor is um, and, and by a lot. No longer is it bound by ethnicity or where your home is located. It is simply those people whom you come across in everyday life. They are your neighbor's. Even if they are your enemies, they are still your neighbors. I also want to kind of bring the pendulum back a little for us as well, uh, because it's easy for us to say our neighbors are everyone that we come across and ignore the people who actually physically live next to us. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this that kind of play off of each other. The first is that our homes are often thought of as a, a sort of like a personal retreat center. We come to our homes to relax, to veg out, and exercise a certain amount of control over, like with the decor and the cleanliness or lack thereof, whatever it is. You know, we are the kings and and queens of our castles, is is kind of the mentality. And castles were specifically built to keep the wrong kinds of people out. Our homes uh, are often thought of, of as boundary markers that signal to people that we are off limits unless you have an invitation to come in. And there's not anything necessarily wrong with the idea of having a space to rest and relax. That's actually a really uh, good thing. Uh, But when we see our homes as as like these personal retreat centers, we see um, this other issue coming up with Jesus's command. And that's the idea that the neighbor that we are supposed to love is is outside of our retreat center. They're out there somewhere. Um, and, And it creates this reality If we ignore the people who live physically close to us, perhaps it's because we actually see them, uh, perhaps it's that that we actually don't want to see them as our neighbors to be loved because it will inevitably intrude on our home as a retreat center. All of a sudden it's the people just right here and all of a sudden those boundary markers get a lot less, uh, a lot more narrow. But perhaps following the way of Jesus Means that we need to shift our paradigm. Josh quoted uh, author Rosaria Butterfield last week, and, and let me just quote it again because it's so good. She wrote this Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's uh, gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. And I love that line. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Scholar Michael Green uh, wrote a book called um, Evangelism in the Early Church. And uh, you know that you're a nerd when you're reading a book by that title. And here I am, I read it, it was great. Um, In it, he traced the historical development of the church. You know, how in the world did a hundred or so people in a backwaters part of the Roman Empire spread the faith, uh, spread faith in Jesus so that in 300 years time, Uh, around half the empire had converted from paganism to Christianity. How in the world did they pull that off? He writes this in his book, One of the most important methods of spreading the gospel in antiquity was by the use of homes. Second century pagan philosopher Celsus complained of it. It was in the private houses that the wool workers, the cobblers, the laundry workers, and I love this, the yokels, whom he so profoundly despised, did their proselytizing. I've never been so proud to be called a yokel. What if, instead of seeing our homes as personal retreat centers, we view our homes as outposts of God's kingdom in our neighborhoods? What if our houses or apartments or dorm rooms were were places where people can encounter the reality of Jesus of Nazareth? If our homes were places where God's spirit spoke over and impacted our neighbors' lives? And I don't think this is just like a, a neat idea, I think this is the actual outworking of Jesus' command to go and do likewise. This story of the Good Samaritan, uh, we cheer this story Jesus tells, but then I think subconsciously at the end, when he says go and do likewise, we, we add to the command. It's like go and do likewise when you have time. Or go and do likewise when you have extra money. Or go and do likewise once a month with your community. And because of this, I think we can often look like the priest or the Levite and not the Samaritan. I mean, sure, you, you certainly don't step out of uh, your door in the morning on your way to school or work and step over like a half-dying naked person on your doorstep, um, at least not usually, um, and then ignore them as you go, right? Um, but even just looking at that one study, uh, we looked at it at Uh, on isolation and loneliness, nearly 50% of people are struggling with it. Imagine if you could see your neighborhood or your apartment complex from God's vantage point to, to know what he knows. Perhaps you would see the, the marriages on the verge of ending, the isolation of those who are workaholics, the struggle of the single mom or dad, the kids who are neglected because of their parents' digital addiction, the abuse, the trauma, the confusion, the hopelessness, on and on. And, and that's not to, to characterize people who do not follow Jesus as train wrecks. That, that's uh, not the case. Everyone goes through seasons of hurt um, and pain and struggle. It's just that we have something through Jesus. We have hope. We have a power that helps us to overcome. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go meet that hurt, that pain, those needs. And there's something in me that reacts with frustration when when I read that from Jesus. It's like there's just something in me that says, Jesus, there are too many needs for me to meet. I don't have the time or the money to help everyone. Um, I have a family, I have work, I have school, I have bills. I have things that you've put in my life that take my time. And then you say, go and do likewise. I can't do it. I will inevitably be like the priest or the Levite. And here's something that I think... Uh, Jesus would respond to with, he would say, yeah, that's, that's true. There is too much for you to do. You can't do it all. The needs and the brokenness are too great and deep for you. So we say, okay, then what? Do we despair? Do we give up? Let me answer this by reminding us of the story of our church and what's brought us to this moment. We were planted with a model of small groups in place called missional communities. Many of you were in one, uh, and it's been a a really long journey of trying to undo that language. (laughs) Small groups of people who practice being family, discipling after Jesus, and then it was centered on this idea of mission, seeing God's kingdom come in our city and partnering with him to see justice happen and invite people into relationship with Jesus. And, And this was a great model, but with a giant flaw. How do people who are not mission-oriented become mission-oriented? Because it wasn't working, to be frank. Most communities rocked the family part, you know, eating together and sharing life. That was great. They did pretty well in the discipleship part, you know, doing Bible studies and praying together and reading through books. But almost every single community flopped big time on the mission part. And so we realized with our friends down at Bridgetown that we had gotten the cart before the horse. In order to be shaped into people who are on mission, we needed to be like Jesus. We need to be shaped and formed. And so we restructured our small groups around the idea of practicing the way of Jesus and using a curriculum centered on spiritual disciplines and emotional health in order for us to grow in intimacy with Jesus and maturity as people in order to partner with god's spirit to see us shaped more like jesus and we made this change about a it's been a, yeah about a year and a half ago a little bit more and, and i think it's been really good um, not without its struggles or hiccups but overall we've seen a lot of fruit in our communities because of it and now we come to this practice of eating and drinking and, and this is the first practice that is in part centered on mission or you know, doing the kinds of things that Jesus did. But in order to faithfully partner with Jesus and to see fruit in this idea of eating and drinking, uh, you will have to put to use the spiritual disciplines and the emotional health practices that we've learned and practiced over the last year and a half. There's nothing like hearing that it was just discovered that some of the kids in your neighborhood were sexually abused by a family member to cause you to fast and grieve with god over the brokenness and evil that they've experienced there's nothing like that annoying neighbor who parties until 3 a.m with the music blaring and their drunk friends yelling and laughing loudly in front of your home to practice forgiveness or having your home be a hangout spot in the neighborhood for you to take intentional time for silence and solitude. Or hearing that your neighbor's parent passed away and taking time for a listening prayer in order to speak a timely word of comfort over them. Or or even this whole adventure uh, of of being a good neighbor that we're talking about tonight. How has God specifically wired you and gifted you to be a good neighbor? What are your strengths? and, And what are your weaknesses? These things and more, are all things that we've learned about together and then practiced together in the last year and a half. And so I, I think what Jesus is, is saying to us is this this idea of being a neighbor, um, you can't do this on your own. Do it with me. Let me guide you in how to be a good neighbor. Go at my pace. My yoke is easy and light because I am with you doing the hard work. I'll shape you into a good neighbor. And then I want to address this idea. Um, Does being a good neighbor mean being the Samaritan to every single person around us? Yes, but I think it depends on what you mean by being like the good Samaritan. I think when we read the Good Samaritan, we focus on what the Samaritan did for the half dead man. You know, there was great personal cost and sacrifice, and yet the Bible lawyer got the message to be a neighbor means to be the one who has mercy. And mercy and hospitality go hand in hand. Hospitality gives us the ability to hear people's stories, to know their hurts and their celebrations. It gives us the opportunity to encourage them, to be there for them, to offer wisdom, and to even talk about Jesus with them. But mercy isn't always extreme acts of self-sacrifice. In fact, I would argue it's more often simple things, like praying for somebody, just listening to their struggles with compassion, offering a word of encouragement or wisdom, just simple things. You know, uh, I love uh, I love hearing people's stories. I don't know why. I just do. And then I love telling stories, um, and especially when I'm up here teaching, if you haven't noticed. So as usual, um, the last couple weeks I've just been praying and asking Jesus to just bring to mind, like, maybe some cool stories about Hannah and I doing hospitality that would, like, inspire people and get you guys all motivated. Um And I had one come to mind, except it wasn't cool. Um, It was a failure of mine. (laughs) Thanks, Jesus. Um, But but I I guess Jesus was into humility or something like that. I don't know. Uh, But I I think he wants to use it to encourage you guys. We have a family uh, from West Africa who are our neighbors. Um, Ansu is the husband, and Fatu is the wife. They're from a culture that is extremely hospitable. Um, We've been over to their house a bunch of times, and and they're always so welcoming. Um, They're also all really generous, and, and by that I mean they don't take no for an answer. I haven't figured out how to not... Uh, get like, consume food and, and drink water when I like, enter their door. They're just like, handing stuff to us. I'm like, no thanks. No, I'm good. I just ate. I just had Thanksgiving dinner. I don't know. I just I don't want anything to eat. And they're still like, giving us food and water. And then we're usually walking home with a bag of food for some reason. I don't know. But super generous. They're great. I, I love them. Um, they're always wanting us to come inside, to sit down, to chat with them, any opportunity. It's beautiful. Just about two weeks ago, uh, Fatu was out with her five-year-old son in front of our house and uh, she and I were chatting while Hannah was um, inside doing something in the kitchen. Um, and our front door was wide open. The kitchen is like 10 feet inside our house. Um, and Fatu asked, oh, where's Hannah? And I said, oh, she's just inside in the kitchen. Go ahead and go in and, and say hi to her. I'm sure she'd love to see you. And she said like, oh, oh no, that's okay. And I was like, what? What? No, no, it's fine, just walk you walk right inside and just go say hi, it's, it's fine. And, and she was like, oh, no, 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 that's okay. And, and in that moment, um, I, I was kind of grieved. Um, you know, I, I, I've realized uh, we had failed to make our home welcoming and inviting for her to enter. Uh, since living in America, they have come to understand that our culture is not hospitable and they didn't see us much different. Um, we had never had their family over for dinner in the three years that we've lived next to each other, and they've had us over though. Um, if Fatou ever did come over, um, it was while I was uh, at work. She was never around us as a family in our home. I, I don't think she, she wanted to encroach on like our family time, uh, even though I was inviting her to. And I was grieved uh, by our failure of hospitality. And as I was thinking about this and being like, Jesus, why'd you bring this to mind thanks? Um, You know, the spirit reminded me of something. Um, Fatu and uh, Ansu are devout Muslims. Um, And we've had brief conversations about theology with them, but nothing too deep or profound. And about a year and a half ago, we had a baby shower for Hannah um, a couple months before Posey was born. Uh, A bunch of uh, you ladies were there that night. Uh, And Fatu came as well, Um, and there was was a moment at the baby shower where a few ladies prayed over Hannah, and and as that was happening, uh, Fatu started weeping. And you have to understand, um, in Islam, you do not have intimacy with Allah. He is merciful, but he is distant. And in this moment, Fatu witnessed ladies praying intimately to their father in heaven on behalf of Hannah and our yet-to-be-born daughter. And it was moving to her. So the spirit reminded me of this, and I just kind of felt like he he said, "Um, if Fatu is moved by how you pray to your father, imagine how powerful it would be for her to see your intimacy with God as you hear directly from his spirit and speak it. And I know coming to church wouldn't be something that they'd be into at this point, so shouldn't our home be a place where they can witness God's Spirit speak? Well, first we have to invite them in. And I think the encouragement for you guys who frankly um, haven't been good neighbors, or maybe you've just been kind of indifferent neighbors, uh, my encouragement to you is that Jesus wants to do something about this. He's not stuck on what you haven't been or what you haven't done. He's looking to grow you and work in you through your hospitality. It may take some work to dig out of the hole that you've created with those that live around you. You know, I know for Hannah and I, um, you know, doing this looks like inviting Ansu and Fatu over for dinner. And, And honestly, probably directly apologizing to them for not having them over sooner, you know, for falling short in our love for them. For you, you might have to do the awkward thing of introducing yourself to the people you've lived next to for years, and that's fine. You have to start somewhere. Um, in fact, uh, lucky for you, our next practice this coming week will involve this diagram here. In the middle is your represents your home, and those eight boxes are the eight closest people living around you, and you see those lines, line A, B, and C. On the first line, your goal is to be able to write the first and last names uh, of of your eight closest neighbors. Line B, your goal is to write uh, just some generic things that you know about them, maybe where they they work, um, maybe where they were born, maybe like their favorite sports team, et cetera, whatever it is. And then on line C, your goal is to uh, write more kind of in-depth information about them, kind of like what's their story, what's motivating them, what are their hopes and their dreams and their fears. If you're like, dang, I, I can barely fill this out. Uh, or I can't fill this out at all, it's all right. You, you aren't alone. Statistically, about 10% of people can fill out line A for all eight neighbors, 3% can do line B for every home, and less than 1% can do line C for every home. So that's not to say, like, oh, man, look how much we suck, uh, but to show that <laughs> we just have a lot of room for Jesus to work and grow us in. After filling out this diagram as much as you can, you'll then write down the things you can do in order to be a better neighbor. You you make a list and then you go for it. So can I uh, make a suggestion to you guys? Start small. Uh, Remember that this is a practice, which means we have to work over a length of time at this to get good. You're not gonna be an all-star right away you're more likely to succeed by making a lot of small changes over a long period of time, with maybe a few big changes sprinkled in as necessary. And so ask the question, how can you use the rhythms of your life that you already have established? For instance, if you like sports, invite a neighbor over to watch the game. Uh, Mowing your yard? Uh, Offer to mow your neighbors, too. Uh, Ask before you do it. You you know, the the easiest is eating and drinking. We all eat meals. Um, You do that probably every night. Um, What if you planned and worked up to making one night of your week neighbor night? And it's just where you cooked a bunch of food and invited any of your neighbors who would come over uh, to just come and eat. And you just do that once a week. It's just a a rhythm that you create. Now, let me encourage you guys with two things. the first is that every single one of you that, that's in a Van City community is way ahead of the curve when it comes to this idea of hospitality and aiding together. You do this every single week with your community. You've seen the logistics of a large meal, you've experienced the ebbs and flows of group conversation around the dinner table, you've most likely survived plenty of awkward moments with relationships intact. And this is not an average, consistent experience a lot of people have. You are ahead of the curve. And the second is also an experience you've gained from being in a Van City community. It's that relationship building takes time. Building relationships with your neighbors is the same, it will take time. If you've never spoken to your neighbors, they probably won't accept an invitation to come over for dinner the first time you say hi. I mean, there's a chance, but they most likely will will just be a little bit freaked out. Um, You might need to first have a handful of conversations with them before that. And, And that's fine. Go at the pace of Jesus, which is not one of hurry and rushing things. It's one of patience and being led by the Spirit into consistent obedience.